Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast with your hosts Meredith Bond and Prue Warren, where they discuss every aspect of a writer's life, from the craft of writing and editing, through publishing and marketing, and finally into building a global publishing empire. Here is Mary and Prue. Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast. I am Meredith Bond, and I am here, as always, with my lovely co-host. I'm Prue Warren, representing those who have less experience in the writing world. And Prue, today we have somebody who has even more experience than I do. We have we, the voice. We, we have, have the, one the voice. We have <laughs> the woman who knows it all. We have the amazing Kathy Seidel, who is one of my heroes of the publishing industry. But you have to look her up under Kathleen Gillis Seidel. Are, uh, Kathy, so are all your books published under Kathleen Gillis Seidel or do you any of them under Kathy Seidel? None are under Kathy Seidel. In the UK, it's Kathleen Seidel because they said Kathleen Gillis Seidel sounded too ritzy and tony and would put people <laughs> off. <laughs> like I'm Camilla Parker Bowles. <laughs> it's always Kathleen Gillis Seidel. All right, Kathleen Gillis Seidel. And just because you've written so many glorious novels, but just just to put the backdrop on just how ritzy are you, what's your educational level in the world of literature? I am a high school graduate. Oh, yeah. We got to go a little further. <laughs> um, yeah, I have um, AB from the University of Chicago. And a PhD from Johns Hopkins. And my dissertation was about the, it was a theory of the novel about the endings on Fielding, Austin, and Dickens. So, you know, just your ordinary everyday romance writer. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Kathy gives the greatest lectures, I have to say. Her lecture is the highlight of the Washington Romance Writers Retreat. Every single year. Thank you. Bravo, bravo. And your your PhD is in literature. Yes, it's in the Abbas in the English department. Yeah. Dang. Dang. And can you count the number of books you've published? Is there a Seven, number? 17, which is not very many in the romance world. Well, I'm and impressed I, that you know. Because if you I, ask well, Meredith, she'll say, Well, I don't know. Well, that's because <laughs> if she only had 17, she'd know. Um, and actually, one of the things that stalled that stalled my career is they kept saying, now, Kathy, you have to write a book a year, and <laughs> which sounds so cute now. And I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> you have to write a book a year. Well, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about is how publishing has changed, how writing has changed, and you suggested how readers have changed. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, you are, you are our voice of authority. Can you give us some, some perspective for what writers are facing today versus the way the world was? Well, uh, let's world... put this into context first. Kathy, when was your first book published? 83 or 84. Okay. 83 or 84. No self-publishing um, back then. None. I knew no one. RWA was a year old, but I'd never heard of them. I knew no one. I didn't have an agent, knew no other authors. I typed Harlequins 
I or maybe hand wrote Harlequin's address on the front of a big envelope, mailed it on Tuesday. They called and bought it on Monday. Oh wow. my God. At six days counting mailing time. Are we too ladylike? To, are we too ladylike to talk about money? No, we are not. No, we talk we about love, it all the time. Love okay. talking about money. Yeah, I do too. Um, so my advance on that first book in the mid 80s was six thousand dollars. It was a launch title for the American Romance line. So I think it made about forty um thousand and then Harlequin bought the rights from me so they could give it away. Then in my wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't understand. I don't understand. It made a total of forty thousand, or you made forty thousand off it. I don't know the difference. I I got the six thousand dollar advance, which was quite generous. It was at the time, and then I received checks for another what thirty four thousand. So you made forty thousand dollars off. Well, I never know what the publisher made. No, no, of course not. And I don't care about that. Right, right. right. Um, <laughs> my my peak advance was fifty thousand from a different publisher. Damn, and it barely earned out. And then at some point, my advances started going down. And my final contract was from Kensington, which is still a mainstream press but a smaller one. And there was no advance because it was digital first, and it. I have totally protected myself from knowing how badly those books are doing. Um, I don't want to know. So when I get my, uh, you know, two figure royalty check, I just don't think about it, you know, because it's just, I did nothing for the book and Kensington did nothing for the book. Uh, So that's interesting because that really is the evolution of publishing now. Yes. Uh, when I started, and you know, I was obsessed with my career, there was nothing to do. You could do autograph things, which, you know, but when you'd say to the publishers, how can I help? They'd say, write another book. Oh, wow. And but nowadays, they expect you to do the, the marketing they for them. you to do it all. And okay, well, well, I have, I have some questions. Yeah. When, when, okay, you're at a peak, if someone offers you $50,000, as your mm-hmm. advance, mm-hmm. I mean that's. I, I, I'm gobsmacked, right? I was told that the average, if you managed to land a contract, maybe you'd get a five thousand dollar advance for the next for, for two books, not just one. It's for two. That's books. what I got. That's what Kensington gave me when I first published with them. They gave me five thousand dollars for two books as a re, as an advance. So well, Kathy, how did you negotiate fifty thousand for a single book? I mean, I'm, holy smoke! Yeah, how did I do it? I don't know. I didn't do it. I had an agent. Did you have an agent? I had an agent. It was an editor that I'd written with at another house, and now she was at a new one. I think. No, not at all. I, I didn't do it. Okay, uh, but that's was, the best way to do it. At at where when I started. The publishers were desperate for product, and they basically paid us to learn to write a book. Then mid-career, they became real interested in people with a good track record. Oh, I know what happened. I had a book that had a really nice cover, and it had a 94% sell-through at Walden or Barnes & Noble. 
Nice. And that number wow. is what jumped the. That, that, that was that was that was the answer. I wasn't yeah. assuming that you were in high level negotiations in in smoke filled <laughs> boardrooms. What I meant was, what had you done to so impress people that they would offer you so much money to start with? And the it, answer it was the ninety four percent sell through. Right at at one big chain. Yeah, I I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Dang. Okay, so that's pretty good. Do you yeah. do you do you know your sell through rate? I mean, is that something that authors know? Because I have, no. I didn't even know that was a number. <laughs> you only I, first of all, I mean, through most of my career, you never know how your books did until twice a year you got an envelope with your royalty check in it and the royalty statement. There was no rankings listings. Uh, publishers had some access to detail, but they didn't share it with you. I, you could kind of figure your shell through rate by looking at the orders and the returns. I knew that number because my agent found it out. Wow. But, but there was less ability to track how you were doing. And that's what I think is then in my career, there was only one thing I had any control over. And that was the quality of the books. Oh. The only thing. And I think that's so important. Right now, for an independent publisher, uh, e-publishing works has four of my backlist. And they are my four best books because I was able to get the rights back to them. And they they don't work terribly hard, and but they set up ads and make me pay for them, but they are getting books that are 30 years old on Amazon bestseller and in narrow little categories. And I have to say my three books from Kensington that didn't do so well, they're not as good books, um, you know, as like the ones that one readers or on uh, the others that, uh, you know, got audible contracts and stuff like that. It's ultimately the quality is what survives. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's write that phrase down. The quality yeah. is what survives. Okay, let me let me point out something that I'm just observing now. I'm I'm seeing a parallel. Your traditional publisher would only send you your royalty checks twice a year, so that was your, your only measure of your success. It was it was not a transparent system, and I'm I'm just. I'm uh, correlating that to what people face now, including the fact that Amazon has this occult practice for how you pay people who are on Kindle Unlimited. There's no transparency. You just have to trust that they're not screwing with you. So I just see that this there's this uh, tradition of screwing the writer that oh, seems yeah. to have been going on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And... I mean, the way you could judge your success within your publishing company was at RWA. <laughs> Did you Our have Romance, Romance Writers, of Writers of America annual convention, which at that point in everybody went to? Did you have a private dinner with your editor or a group rec group breakfast? Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I was always among the group breakfast. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I was a private dinner. And so, oh my God, that's, that's Amazon rankings. Yes, but only once a year. <laughs> once a year. Oh my God. So, but Kathy, you have said to me before that you 
really hate the idea of marketing and you don't want to be a self-publisher because you don't want to do the publishing, all you Mm -hmm. want to do is write. Well, that's all I wanted to do. Now I don't even want to do that. Uh, (laughs) You know, and one of the things that concerns me, I don't think that the market as we have right now is sustainable. Why not? Well, because how the hell do readers find the books? Right. Harlequin made it really easy for people to buy a book. You'd go into the grocery store and you bought the book by number. You know, there were the different series. I like this series because it's real sexy or it's not real sexy. And okay, last month it came out to number 112. Oh, this is 113. I'll buy it. You could buy a book when you had three screaming children with you and it was reliable. Now you're at home. I don't know how you sort through. Well, it's it's like podcasts. How do you, there's so many. Right. How do you find, how do you find things? But, but once, a, once a reader finds you and you're cranking out three or four books a year, if you're one of their five top authors, then they find you. Whenever and they'll people, look for you by name. Whenever people use the verb cranking out books to me, I would say, I quarrel with your verb. That's the PhD in you. You know too much. Because I don't crank out the books. I write them. I crank them. And my concern is when you are, uh, now partly I'm speaking from my own experience, I could never sustain that pace and write books that I was proud of. Readers will forgive you maybe two. When you start phoning it in, readers will forgive you a couple books, but then they quit. I mean, think of the various people you, you know, particularly murder mystery authors, I'm willing to talk about. I don't read Martha Grimes anymore. I don't read Janet Ivanovich anymore. I feel like they started not trying. Hmm. And readers won't stick with you for life unless each book is fresh and exciting. Let me ask you a really impolitic question since you brought it up. I love Janet Ivanovich, but I won't read her anymore either. Uh, The other one I was thinking of is Jennifer Cruzy. Do you think these names become so popular with the public that their publishers won't allow them to divert into something else? You're not allowed to do anything different. You got to repeat what you've done. And if you won't do it, I'll hire someone who will and put it under your name. Well, you have to read your contract really carefully and be sure they're not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if they paid you enough money, I mean, Charlene oh, Harris yeah. did the, the the vampire ones, the Sookie Stackhouse books that were blissful for nine. And then all of a sudden the voice changed and they weren't as good. And I thought, you know, if they paid her enough money, she would allow someone else to write the books and they could publish under her name. Uh, don't count on it. There's no amount of money. I mean, maybe J.K. Rowling's money. I, I would not allow that. <laughs> you know, this is you also uh, don't prank. This is my name. You know, when I sold my first book to Harlow, when they asked right away, what's your pseudonym? And after I sold my second book, I said, oh, screw it. I'm proud of these. I'm not using a pseudonym. Read the contract, realized the reason they wanted you to use a pseudonym is then they owned it. Oh, Even no. They, no, no, no. Even if they couldn't, have somebody else write under it, you could not take it away with you. I mean, 
Nora Roberts had to work pretty hard with Silhouette to get the rights to use it, her name for other books, um, because it's not her name. It's, it's a version of her name. So I've always used my own name. Because Is of that, that still true? I have no, no. idea. No, I don't think so. It, there was a, a time when Harlequin had this thing with names where they could publish or own books, depending uh-huh. on the name that you use to publish it. Yeah, yeah, they were pretty notorious for that. Yeah, I if I used the pseudonym, they could they couldn't publish under that name, but I couldn't take it. Neither of us could publish under it if I left. So wow. I used the name, and you don't sign that away. So. And now, and now you're glad there is just, there are pitfalls everywhere. I mean, maybe that's not the way it is now, but the more I hear about these traditional contracts and you have to wait 20 years before you get your rights back. And well, that depends on the contract. I have seven years to get my rights back. Yeah. And seven and then, or sometimes they're just nice about it. Well, that I've never heard of. <laughs> well, you know, let's see. I think it was, I may have the publishers wrong. I wrote some books for NAL or Pocket with Claire Zion. And then she moved to another publishing house. Oh, no. I wrote these books with someone else, but worked work with Claire. Then she moved to uh, running NAL. NAL had some rights to the books. And I wasn't entitled to them back. But I knew her. I had a relationship with her. And she gave them back to me. Oh, that's nice. Never burn any bridges in publishing. Never burn any bridges. I used to say all roads lead back to Harlequin. Now I don't know where all roads lead back to, but they all do. Amazon is where they lead back yeah, to. Yeah, they all lead back to Amazon. So don't burn any bridges. Yeah. Somebody will that you had a fight with will be hired to run Kindle Unlimited or Amazon, whatever, and you'll be screwed. Right. Yeah. Or you'll Kathy, know if you had a burnt a novel in you, and I know you've said that you, you think you're done. If you had one in you, would you self-publish yes. now? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean I suspect to be honest that my numbers at Kensington would be so bad, it would be a really tough sale. And then they would probably say to me, start with another name, pretend you're new which they've tried several times. And I've always said, no, I, I think what I would do if I did write another, I, I probably, I don't know what I would do, but I, I really do feel that I have retired. My best work is behind me. I'm 70 years old. Well, you know, I like when David Bowie died and people are like, Oh, I'm so sorry that David Bowie said, or Prince. I'm like, you know, they're not dead. They're on my, playlist i mean your books are on my shelf your your work is not behind you every new reader who picks it up right yes there you are i mean you have eternity now so that's you got that going for you well i like i think it was woody allen who said i want to achieve immortality not through my work but by not dying (laughs) (laughs) we're all following your lead kathy so figure that one out will you yeah You said that Kensington, the book didn't, the books didn't do well for Kensington because you didn't do any marketing and Kensington didn't do any marketing. Not really. Uh, No. Do you think this is, you were at the transition moment where suddenly publishers expected the authors to do their own marketing? Yeah. Or I think I was beyond the transition moment. Mm -hmm. It was, we were totally there. 
And, you know, it's different if you're a brand name author, you know? Right. Um, Do you think that they they um, market brand name authors? I I do not know. I assume so. Like Michael Connolly, something like that. I just know they didn't do anything for me. I mean, I no longer know a lot about the wider publishing world. The point is, we and most of your listeners are not brand name authors. Right. Amen. And and yeah. so yeah. for that reason, even if you get a traditional publishing contract, which is nowadays, I believe, much, much more difficult to get mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah. Then, then you cannot count on them marketing your books for you, which Absolutely. at your heyday, you definitely could. Oh, there was no way to market things. I mean, you could print bookmark, which right. I never did. I mean, you'd go somewhere and come back with a fistful of bookmarks and, and make pens. Um, no, there was nothing to be done. And so it was, you know, you just wrote your book. Right. Well, and there was certainly networking and getting to know people and being an easy person to work with and all that, which is, I'm sure, true in any business. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. You never had an author newsletter or a Facebook group or any of the other things that are considered necessary Mm -hmm. today. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because they didn't exist. They didn't exist. And, you know, I have an author page on Facebook now. Um, I have I have a website that I never update. I haven't updated it in probably three years. I don't know how well, to update. If you're yeah. if you're if you are retired, you're entitled I to feel, I think it would be nice to say that on my website. Oh, I see. <laughs> no, let's believe that you're still cranking them out. Kathy, yeah. you mentioned earlier that you thought it wasn't just publishing that had changed. You thought that readers had changed. Yes. When I started, the kind of books you choose can reflect your identity. And readers who read romance felt very ashamed. Some of them felt ashamed of what they were right. reading, or they felt that other people would judge them. Therefore, Part of why I did well so early is I assumed that my reader was as smart as I was. And people really appreciated that. That's not necessary now. Okay, hold on, hold on. Because I know you have more thoughts according to that, but but you weren't in charge of the cover of your book. Absolutely, or the title. Or the title. So you would like to be a romance. You had to be sweet, savage love. You had to be uh, his, his bride forever or whatever. I mean, it was, it was, there were fewer, believe it or not, if you understood the reader, which I did and understood that at that point, she didn't want erotica. Actually, we could do more than contemporary authors could do now because Culturally, a lot of people weren't paying any attention. Wow. And if, you know, the whole like alpha male thing, which I never particularly wrote, you know, as Jane Ann Krant said, we could do that because whenever we published a book with an alpha hero, the readers loved it. So one of the differences of the readers now is they are more confident. 
they are less grateful to you. When I, I know, like when I was in college, there was never anything that exactly what I wanted to be. I thought I got rid of that background, right? <laughs> uh, there was, you know, I wanted contemporaries. That I mean, there's George at Hire for Regencies. That was wonderful. But I wanted contemporaries. But there was only Mary Stewart and Phyllis Whitney who wrote suspense. I didn't want suspense. Right. Then when you would find the Harlequin Presents, you'd be so, oh, God, somebody's finally writing a book for me. And that's what your readers felt when you reached them. Oh, she is writing a book for me. And of course, she didn't know you personally because there was a two sentence bio of you in the front of the book. That's all she knew about you. But she knew that you were on her side. You know, my soundbite of my career is my first book, which I wrote out of graduate school and no one bought, was a novel that was going to save the world. Then I started teaching at our community college and all these lovely, what they were called, re-entry housewives. And I wrote to them not to change their lives, but to change their afternoons. Right. And I think the readers could feel that that I was there when they were tired and had a little time for themselves and they were grateful. And I don't think the readers felt that, feel that scarcity anymore of there's nobody else out there for me. So I love that concept um, that there's no scarcity, right? Because it is, it is hard to, obviously it's hard to attract the attention of people who buy books, but it's also Uh, a continual effort to keep that reader engaged until the next book comes out. I mean, that's where the newsletter comes in. That's where the social media comes in. Um, So that lack of gratitude, which is such a beautiful way to put it, has, has expanded what a writer needs to do in order to sell a lot of books. See, all I needed to do was change your afternoon. Yeah, I think that scarcity is really important because right now we have, because of self-publishing, we have such a glut of books Yeah, that as as you say, Kathy, you don't know where to look because they're coming at you from every direction and you don't know even, it's an overabundance that just stymies people from doing anything. Or yes. knowing what what to pick up. Yeah. And that's why I'm not sure this is sustainable. Where we are right now, you know, it's a very, very mature market. And I can't tell you what's going to happen. Something's got to happen. And my advice to people would be the way to keep your head above water when the revolution comes <laughs> is to write wonderful books. And the other thing is, if you want to be here in 35 years with your self-esteem intact, you have got to write books you're proud of. That's all you can control. Not anymore. Not anymore with self-publishing. It's not all you control. You have to be, you not only have to write books you're proud of, but you are responsible. I am responsible for finding the new readers. Yeah. Which is hard. 
you know, but but just because you have a stake in that and a responsibility to that, you can't totally control it. No, that's true. You're right. I wish and I could. The one thing you can totally control is writing the best possible book you can write at that moment. Not all my books are equally good. They're really not. I have some that I would not want to reread. But at the time, they were the best I could do. So getting back to retirement, Kathy. Yes, Uh ma'am. Do you consider, okay, we we had a a discussion on our podcast um, whether being an author was an art, an identity, or a profession. I always wondered if it was an identity, that who am I if I'm not a writer? Mm -hmm. Then I realized I have always defined myself by relationships. And as a novelist, it's my relationship with my characters. Menopause certainly hit me creatively very hard. It was a number of years ago. And I don't know that I would have declared myself retired had it not been for the pandemic because so many, you know, at first I started thinking, well, I'm not going to put pressure on myself during the pandemic thinking a month. And then it went on and on. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. Laverle Spencer retired really uh, 20 years ago and everybody was shocked because no one else has quite at the time said they were retired and, you know, no one understood it, but yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm 70. I've been doing this for 35 years or so. I, I It's important to keep myself challenged. So I sew a lot. I take flower arranging classes, just like retired people are supposed to do. Tried to learn calligraphy, but that's really hard. So, yeah. You're enjoying stories, your retirement. Yeah. Stories aren't speaking to you, though. You When you date, no, you don't not. envision a scenario. They're not. And they really haven't been urgent since menopause they've been there but now i think if they hint at it i just kind of leave the door closed ah see that's oh i think that's interesting yeah well for for other writers i'll say that i am postmenopausal as well and they're still talking to me so i know they do for some guarantee yeah Yeah. no it it, it's it's great yeah i think that's fascinating yeah that is absolutely fascinating you know if i could be young scrappy and hungry again and full of ideas and obsessed. Yeah, I'd go back there in a minute, but I'm not. And you've seen such incredible changes over the course of your publishing yeah. history. That, and, uh, I'm, and I'm very, very satisfied with what I've accomplished. So, you should be. Yeah. Uh, you know, once I said to Jennifer Enderlin, an editor of mine, if I got on the New York Times bestseller list, I'd be higher than a kite for two hours. And then Jennifer said, then you don't want it enough. Oh. And I realized I don't. I didn't. You know, Mindy Klasky told me that she'd been to a conference of high level people who were seriously Mm -hmm. into marketing. And what she learned was that she didn't want it as badly as she thought she did. That the cost for that level of success was too high for her. It depends on how you define success. Mm Mm-hmm. It I define success as writing books I'm proud of, and that you can hold on to. I think that's a fantastic lesson. I really do. I think that's something to live by. Yeah, I have. Kathy, you are truly an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's. I want to have you back to talk about 
uh, liter- literature and literary things. But thank you very yeah. much for, for this time because I'm going to go write about her book now. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to phone it in. There's my cat yep. saying hello. Um, Meredith, next week we're talking to Alex Rickloff. Yes. yes. Alex, Alex is also traditionally published and she does something very interesting that I'm really interested in speaking to her about. She writes in non-traditional genres. Excellent. It's going to be very interesting to hear. Yes. Kathy, you're glorious. You're a goddess. We follow Thank behind you. you. You're a Thank star in the firmament. Thank, Thank you me. so much, Kathy. You're this welcome. was so fascinating. I'll talk to you next week, Mary. Okay. See you, Prue. Bye. That's it for the Writer's Block Party this week. We don't want you getting so drunk on knowledge that you can't drive your laptop safely. But next week we'll be here before you know it, so check out the website at thewritersblockpartypodcast.com. One word. That's where you can find our archive of past podcasts and a place where you can get in touch with Mary and Prue or ask questions for the next podcast. Write with joy, friends, and see you next week. Thank you.